Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, June 23rd. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I will not be giving you any of my Amazon Prime deal lists today. Uh, joining me is my always fast shipping co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hang on, Tom. I just ordered some paper towels, and I got to click order. Sorry, I'll be right there. Yes, in a in a week that was dominated by a whole bunch of shopping news, we found the one few stories that were not shopping related, and we're going to be bringing them to you as we do every week. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in. And uh, Stephen, we're going to start with some news uh, about federal government stuff. So Veeam has decided to get back into the federal business after having a few issues over the last couple of years. Now, you may recall back in 2018 that they purchased into WS and then got some complaints from their biggest customer, which of course was the US government, who had some issues with their backups being stored with a company that was backed and pretty much led by Russians. So that caused Veeam to sell into WS back to their original founders just a year later. However, they stayed out of the federal business for at least a year until they were purchased by Insight Partners in January of 2020. Now they have gotten back into the Fed business, but in order to make things look like they're more on the up and up, I guess, to be the best way to put it, uh, Veeam has actually created a subsidiary specifically for this business called Veeam Government Services Incorporated. Imagine that. Now, Stephen, I know that Uncle Sam can be a little twitchy about this kind of stuff, but do you think that this is going to be enough for Veeam to be able to work their way back into the Fed side of things? Yeah, I think that's the interesting question here. And, and so we actually talked about this over a year ago on the rundown. It was actually you and Rich talking about uh, Veeam being acquired by Insight Partners and, uh, you know, kind of ditching the Russians or actually vice versa. The truth is that it was the Russians that decided that they were done with Veeam. Um, I think they, uh, they started the company. Um, enjoyed the company, uh, built the company, and uh, now they're letting it run. And uh, I have noticed that the company is different, uh, different from what it used to be. And um, frankly, my friends over there at Veeam have told me the same thing, that it is a bit of a different company. Uh, that, I think, is the real story here. Essentially, the U.S. government, uh, unsurprisingly, doesn't want to trust data protection and ransomware protection to a company that was literally owned by Russian nationals and was based in Russia. Um, I can understand that. Uh, politically, uh, maybe not specifically, but uh, yeah, that's essentially what's going on here. Um, the uh, former uh, attempt with uh, N2WS was uh, essentially a transparent uh, attempt to circumvent the uh, restrictions, and uh, I'm glad that it didn't work. Um, I'm sure they're not glad, but uh, this new way is uh, frankly what they needed to do. They went out and hired themselves a uh, professional who's got experience in the government space, uh, and he's going to be running a new Veeam subsidiary to sell to the government, and good on you. So frankly, uh, nothing to see here. Uh, move along, boys. Move along. Uh, hey, Tom, did you know that uh, there's a new bug in iOS that can cripple your Wi-Fi? Uh, this bug exploits an SSID with a name that includes specific variable names with percent signs. When you join this Wi-Fi network, the network will crash the Wi-Fi stack and render it inoperable even after a reboot. <laughs> the current fix involves resetting your network connections and joining all of your wireless networks again, which ought to be fun. Uh, hey, Tom, is this a big issue? 
that depends on how likely you are to just randomly run around and join wireless networks. So I'm not going to tell you what the string is, but it's pretty easy to find it. And it's it's a bunch of percent signs followed by letters. And it really does look like just a, a thing you'd find in code somewhere. So I'm assuming what happens is, is that the Wi-Fi stack in iOS is not escaping those variables correctly. And so it's creating like a null name that causes the Wi-Fi system to just crash over and over and over again. So then of course- Do you think that it was uh, little Jimmy drop tables that programmed this? It could very well be. And I'm glad that that little Bobby tables had nothing to do with this because that would be a much bigger issue if it could lead to massive data corruption. Thankfully, it only crashes the Wi-Fi stack. And only as long as you don't go in and do the magic reset network settings, which seems to fix almost everything. Now, I would highly expect that there's going to be an iOS, what are we on now, 14.6.1.2, whatever, that's going to fix this problem. Basically, it'll either start um, sanitizing Wi-Fi names or something like that. But in the meantime, here's a simple tip for all of you people at home. Don't join random Wi-Fi networks. It's that easy, especially if you see some percent signs in them. The only way that I could see this being widely exploitable is if somebody managed to build it into like a QR code and you scan the QR code and then it crashes the network. But hopefully by the time someone's smart enough to figure that out and operationalize it, Apple will have a patch pushed out the door. So this is more of a, you know, wow, I didn't know it would do that. But maybe it's more along the lines of don't just randomly join Wi-Fi networks without knowing what you're doing. All right, Stephen, um, we're going to talk a little bit about one of our favorite friends of the show, NetApp, because um, they are looking to hit the right spot. Specifically, they are announcing a new service on Spot by NetApp that is aimed at launching Apache Spark workloads on Kubernetes. Now, the advantages of using Spot by NetApp, according to the article, are that you get a fully managed infrastructure and you get a lot of automation expertise. Now, where could all of this come from? Well, it turns out that this is the realization of the data mechanics acquisition that they made, and that's what they're leveraging in order to be able to offer this service. Now, Stephen, I know that Apache Spark workloads are a huge deal for big data. So what's the play that NetApp is looking to leverage here for users? Yeah, this is a great, uh, honestly, it's a great acquisition. So the news is not spot. Uh, Spot has been around for a little while. In fact, NetApp presented it at our uh, field day events, and uh, it's a pretty cool thing. The news is that they got uh, data mechanics uh, and acquisition. And, and let me tell you, this is not a big company. Uh, data mechanics reportedly had total funding of $150,000, had under 10 employees, maybe as few as two employees, I'm hearing, uh, maybe more than that. I don't know. We'll see and um, was a pretty recent company, pretty recent kind of startup. Um, but the cool thing is that they were developing a solution that addresses a nascent and very cool uh, emerging data set, which is Apache Spark. So Spark is basically a great way to build uh, big data and AI ML applications. And uh, data mechanics had a bright idea of integrating that with Kubernetes. And NetApp has been doing really cool stuff with Spot. Um, man, seriously, if you haven't looked at NetApp Spot, um, you need to. They've been really investing in this space. I know, I know you think, oh, NetApp, there's some kind of 
like data center or file server kind of company? What, what could they be? No, 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 this is something different. Go look it out. And, and this, is a, this is a cool thing. It's a cool thing all around. Congratulations to the data mechanics team. Congratulations, uh, NetApp uh, cloud team for scooping up some good people and a uh, good solution. And uh, right on you for heading in the right direction with, I know, the old toaster filer business. So anyway, it, it works, it works. Um, moving on a little bit, Tom, uh, let's talk quantum computing. Uh, that's a little different than the data file server, right? Yeah. So uh, it's a cool subject, um, quite literally, since the technology needs to be chilled within a few degrees of absolute zero in order to work properly in most cases. According to a new report from Science Daily, researchers at the University of Copenhagen have succeeded in storing quantum bits, or as I like to call them, qubits, at room temperature for the first time. Uh, this new innovation means that qubits can be stored without massive energy investment in cooling and also stored in greater capacity than ever before. Uh, does this uh, being a real breakthrough in the quantum realm, oh, Ant-Man? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the quantum realm, and I'm especially a big fan of it when I can wear my Hawaiian shirt and shorts as opposed to, I don't know, needing to wear a parka. And that's one of the things that we talked about all the way back in Conversations Episode 10 when I talked about quantum computing for the first time. Qubits are finicky little things to begin with because you have to basically build this structure just right to be able to analyze it in order to do all the inference work. Well, one of the gotchas is, is that you gotta have as little energy in there as possible. And that means chilling the thing down to within just a couple of degrees of you know negative 270 degrees Celsius, which is really cold, a little colder than Denmark. So the guys at the University of Copenhagen, what they did is they figured out that you can store qubits at room temperature with a special coating that they put on the memory structure. Okay, what's the big deal? Well, the immediate breakthrough was is they were able to store more qubits than they've ever been able to store before. And going back to something I mentioned in episode 10, one of the things that makes quantum computing so freaking hard is that you can't really figure out what data is in the qubit you have to infer it with a whole bunch of other qubits that take on the state of what data is in there. So the more qubits you can build into each individual compute unit, the more powerful your quantum computer can get. So being able to do more of them without having to pour, you know, like gallons and gallons of liquid nitrogen around the thing to get it cold means your quantum computing power effectively goes up massively very soon. So I liken this to cold fusion, where we're essentially doing fusion at reasonable temperatures, not heart of the sun temperatures. So that is a good thing for people who want to build things on quantum computers. It's a really bad thing for cryptographic analysis, because what it means is that Shor's algorithm is just that much closer to being solved, which means all of our current cryptography is, is probably going to be null and void, well, maybe a couple of years sooner than we had hoped. But, you know, I, I'm going to look forward to uh, reading how this works. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm can't, waiting to see when Honeywell and IBM manage to operationalize it into something that they're going to make really cool videos about. All right, Stephen, we had a couple of stories from this week that we wanted to take a little bit of a closer look at. And the first one comes to us courtesy of our friends at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, because HP Discover is happening this week. Now, the first thing that we think of whenever we think of HPE is GreenLake, because GreenLake is something that HPE is investing heavily in. Well, on Tuesday, they released several new features, 
of their everything as a service offering of GreenLake, including silicon on demand, which is something that they've been partnering with Intel on. You also uh, should note that they released something called GreenLake Lighthouse, which is designed to offer cloud-native workload configuration assistance. So they're trying to do cloud-native workloads on-premises. Uh, Project Aurora, which is a zero-trust security architecture that's actually based on the Cytale uh, acquisition that we discussed on the rundown last year. And then there's a whole host of things that they're doing very specific narrow targeting towards like uh, electronic medical records, financial services. So they're basically betting the house that GreenLake is going to take care of every problem that you might possibly have. But what does this feel like to you, Stephen? Does this feel like that they've really finally figured out how to use GreenLake to make things work? Or is this them chasing everything they can possibly find in the hopes that GreenLake will stick on something? Well, uh, to hear my friends in the industry put it, um, I think this is working. Uh, I have to say, um, I was a little skeptical when I heard of GreenLake because uh, frankly, I mean, HP is a big company that's been around for a long time and uh, big companies don't just pivot. And in fact, uh, the idea of getting a company that was a product company to pivot to an as a service market is uh, almost, incomprehensible, uh, inconceivable even. And I know what that word means. But the, the truth is that, frankly, uh, it's kind of working here. Uh, one of the things that Neary said, Antonio Neary, the CEO, said uh, at uh, HPE Discover is that GreenLake should be synonymous with HPE. It really is. What you said in your introduction, Tom, is so true. If, if a customer is buying from HPE, there's a real good chance that they're actually buying through GreenLake and that they're getting as a service through HPE. This company has done this better than basically anybody else in the industry, and they keep doing more. And I've got to say, good on you. Nice job, um, which is not something that I say all the time about HPE. So let's kind of run down this list. Um, so, you know, Lighthouse, well, that's, you know, analogous to any of these, uh, you know, uh, configuration platforms, uh, but of course it allows you to configure GreenLake services, and uh, that's really what the whole ballgame is about. So, you know, that's good. Um, you know, Aurora, I don't know. Um, I don't get it. Uh, maybe you do, Tom. <laughs> uh, maybe you can talk about that. Uh, you know, the services uh, for 5G and EMR and financial service and all that kind of stuff, well, that's just good business. I mean, essentially, this is HP taking themselves up a level in the infrastructure stack and saying, you know, we're not just going to be, you know, providing a server, we're going to be providing, or even a server as a service, we're going to be providing a solution for electronic medical records or whatever. This is good stuff. Uh, it reminds me of the fact that uh, HPE, or I'm sorry, HP used to be in that market pretty heavily and kind of got out of it and is now, um, you know, kind of getting into the electronic medical record or medical uh, market from a different direction, a uh, direction that makes sense. Honestly, they're just doing a nice job here. But let me really focus on the silicon on demand thing first. So, uh, as you know, uh, I've been really deeply involved in the whole what's the future of data center infrastructure going to look like thing. Uh, we did quite a bit here on the uh, rundown about NVIDIA and ARM. Uh, we've talked quite a lot about uh, the AMD Epic server processor line. And of course, Tech Field Day was part of the Intel Ice Lake launch. And I've been watching this pretty closely. And one of the things that has come up repeatedly 
is this question of uh, how is Intel going to make use of the new features that they're bringing in, especially things around Optane. Well, this actually shows a path forward for that. So essentially what's going on here, it looks to me like Intel and HPE are working together to deliver um, not exactly composable infrastructure, not exactly the machine, but uh, infrastructure on demand in a way that can be provisioned and changed on demand. And, and I think that that's really cool. And frankly, it's a, again, a really practical approach. Whereas you know, previously HP's idea of this all memory computing in the machine and all this kind of stuff seemed a little bit pie in the sky. Uh, this thing is seems really real. It seems like the kind of thing that they could roll out and customers could be using. And that to me gets me excited because um, frankly, HPE's entire market is taking the past and bringing it into the future. Like that's their whole reason for existence. And nothing says that like GreenLake, except maybe Silicon On Demand. And I'm really thrilled to see this. So overall, nice job, HPE. I know it's a little confusing, folks. I know that you didn't see like, oh, where's the new server? Where's the new storage array? We didn't see that uh, really. But what we did see was here's the new HPE. And I think that's the message that Neri wanted to send from Discover. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the Aurora stuff, which is based on the Cytel acquisition, the importance that you need to understand about that is that it integrates all of those pieces together securely. And that is a part, when you look at who they're targeting with all of these new service offerings, financial, medical, I'm sure there's going to be some other restricted, uh, regulated industries. These are people who do not want to have any questions about the way the security in their system works. And they don't want to have to go shell it out to a third party because then that creates integration issues. And what happens if something goes wrong? Who do we point the finger at? This is the, the single finger to point at HPE if anything goes wrong. But now it's completely integrated top to bottom. All the things, whether they're on-premises or in the cloud, no matter how you're consuming GreenLake, are all secured with a zero trust architecture. That is, well, their only reason that they'll be able to compete in these markets is because they have that offering. So I, I agree with you. I think GreenLake, <laughs> I think GreenLake is going to be the new name for the company in the next couple of years, because as you said, Antonio Neri wants everybody to think GreenLake when they think HP. I think HPE, I think they're going to see that more and more because they are whatever solution they're going to release in three months, it's going to be HPE, GreenLake, whatever. So, you know, I don't necessarily know that we'll ever get to like, you know, HPE, GreenLake, Edge, SD-WAN or Edge, Wi-Fi or something like that. But it's going to get pretty close because that's how you build brand recognition, whether it's IBM or Cisco or EMC, whatever. You, you pick your partner, you pick your, your identity, and you run with it as long as you can. And I think that that, at least for HPE, is going to pay off handsomely in the future. Yeah. And I don't think they're literally going to change the name of the company, but I do think that when you say HPE, you're going to be thinking buying as a service instead of buying, um, you know, buying. And I think that that's a big change. That's a big transformation for them, and they're doing it the right way. So, Tom, it wouldn't be the rundown if we don't talk security and breaches. And, and thank goodness we're not talking ransomware this time. Um, this time, uh, guess what? Your password might be included in another big data breach. In fact, 
I guess it's the biggest data breach, a 100 gigabyte text file containing 8.4 billion passwords has been released. And researchers believe that this is a combination of several different data breaches over the years collected in a single file that can easily be searched and exploited. Needless to say, with only 7 billion people in the world, it's a safe bet that one of your passwords is in there. And I bet one of mine is too. Um, no word on yet on how quickly attackers will start trying to use this data or if it's anything new or whatever, but um, wow, uh, it seems like this will inevitably be exploited. Uh, how much damage is this thing gonna cause, Tom? It depends on how quickly you change your passwords, because one of the things that we're seeing is this collection. Now, there are new passwords in this leak. We know that because there are some unique identifiers that we haven't seen before. But a lot of this is, you know, like when they when they exploit Netflix, when they exploit Hulu, when they do that, they're getting smart enough to start dumping all of these password locations together. And honestly, I kind of think it's the it's the attacker version of Troy Hunt's Have You Been Pwned? Well, why don't we just do that for us? Because the problem that you're going to run into is if you have a 100 gigabyte text file that contains a list of credentials and passwords, that means that you can create a really cool set of rainbow tables with it. And that makes exploit speed infinitely faster. Because then the next time they see these credentials in the wild in a non-clear uh, text format, that means that they can just look it up in the giant 100 gig rainbow table that they've created and start getting instant matches. Now. I've noticed recently, especially with um, iOS, uh, macOS software, I'm getting more and more and more pop-ups that are warning me about things like, hey, you've reused this password. You really need to change this. We've seen a lot of people who have started picking up password managers like 1Password, LastPass, KeePass as the default method for, I'm just going to go ahead and autofill this password so that I don't even remember what it is. We've got to get to a point where that becomes standard password hygiene, that things like 2FA, two-factor authentication, become the default way that we interact with systems. Because it doesn't take much for all of these things to get out in the wild. And just like any good secret, as soon as it's out there, it can't be unlearned. And we're going to see password breaches. That There's no way to stop that. All data is eventually going to be leaked on the internet somewhere. It's the scale. 8.4 billion credentials is a lot. And that is such a massive problem because you can't defend against that. All you can do is once again, roll your eyes, change all your passwords, hopefully to something you don't remember using a password manager and move on with your day. And then the next time this happens again, change them again. But it's, it's becoming almost untenable at this point. Yeah, frankly, I'm wondering if uh, the repeated data breaches and all these challenges we've been having, you know, maybe it is time to go to the passwordless future. Uh, maybe it's time to use biometrics, to use uh, universal login, um, because frankly, um, I I'm not kidding. I mean, well, so I'm a big fan of, of Have I Been Pwned and, and Troy Hunt. I've known him for years uh, back when we, before we launched the thing as Microsoft MVPs, I remember when he was telling me about it and I was like, wow, that sounds like a great idea. Absolutely, this is the same thing, except for the evil guys. And uh, frankly, um, at this point, you know, like I said, I've been using this thing for a long time. Uh, I have had my passwords pwned uh, many, 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 many times. Now, I am a huge, huge and, and fervent and careful user of password managers. 
and I absolutely do not know any of my passwords. They're all stored in a secure password manager. I'm also a big believer in two-factor, and I mean real two-factor, not text your phone, which is like useless. Um, but that being said, um, I'm pretty worried too. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of these things that have happened, and then frankly, uh, they're going to keep happening. And now we've got, like you said, basically a great big database of useful passwords. So it's going to happen. Uh, I think we need to do something else. Now, that being said, I really don't want sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook or sign in with Twitter to be the norm. I really want there to be something else. And so I kind of I applaud Apple's work. Uh, you know, I do applaud what some of these uh, other companies are trying to do to move us forward. I just don't know how we see our way out of it. Um, and this boy, that was a big leak. All right, Stephen. Uh, friend of the show, Pat Gelsinger, is a really happy man today. And the reason for that is because the United States Senate just passed a huge $52 billion domestic semiconductor manufacturing funding bill. It is called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which sounds very lawyer-esque because it used to be called the Endless Frontier Act, which sounds like something you'd hear in a Western. Um, but it is seen as a specific response to the fact that most semiconductor manufacturing appears to be done in China. And that is a problem for a lot of people here in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. So Gelsinger is just one of the many voices of U.S. industry that is backing this uh, important act, which provides funding for a lot of the chip manufacturing uh, initiatives that have been launched over the last couple of years. But Intel isn't just standing on the Capitol steps lauding the news. They are putting their money where their mouth is because they have been making a significant investment into domestic foundry production, um, especially with some of the plants in Arizona so that they've been upgrading and modernizing. And then Pat made their big announcement about this foundry as a service solution that they're going to be offering to other companies to basically manufacture your chips for you just in the good old US of A instead of overseas. But um, Stephen, I kind of have to wonder because the first thing we have to worry about is the fact that the Senate passed it, but now the House has to pass it before it can be signed into law. Um, are we looking at a real renaissance here if this thing passes where we're going to start seeing a lot more manufacturing happening here in the US? Or is this kind of a little bit of sturm and drang about what's going to happen and we're really trying to make an effort, but not really? Well, a lot of our previous efforts have really been pretend efforts and not enough money to actually make a difference. This looks like enough money to make a difference. And um, I think that's a good sign. Uh, that being said, you might ask yourself, how did we get here? You might ask yourself, how is it that Intel needs a $50 billion federal bailout? You may ask yourself, uh, how is it that we need to spend massive, massive tax dollars on something that is literally so in demand that it's causing ripple effects throughout the entire global economy, which is, you know, chip making. And uh, frankly, you may ask yourself, and this would be a valid question, is this money actually going to do anything or is it just going to be a big giveaway to American companies like Intel? And the answer is, yeah, it's going to be a big giveaway to American companies like Intel. But that being said, you know, 
I guess that's fair is fair, right? Because frankly, uh, you know, why is there so much chip production in China and in South Korea and in Japan and in Taiwan? Big giveaways to big companies from the government. And I guess uh, we're in the big giveaway to big companies from the government stage too. Um, as Pat Gelsinger wisely said, we want incentives, we want investments. <laughs> because it's the right thing to accelerate manufacturing and the imbalance of the global supply chain. What he failed to say is because it's going to make Intel super duper profitable and I'm the new CEO and that'll look awesome. So uh, thanks guys for the big pile of cash. I know that some of the Democrats are looking at blocking it. Um, they won't. Uh, there's no chance. Uh, it, it has China attached to it. They're going to they're gonna accept it. Um, and, and frankly, I know that there's maybe some skepticism, like, will this money actually be used for productive purposes? It will. It will. I guarantee that, that the money is going to get poured into chip making factories. I just don't think that it's going to make one bit of a difference because Intel was going to invest in this anyway, because it's a great market. It's a high, high demand, and um, it's not going to accelerate anything because there's just no way to do that. I mean, pouring more money on it won't make it run faster. We just have to wait for the production to catch up. So, yeah, go have some money. Here, have some money. And the other problem that people aren't really thinking through when they do this is, oh, well, if Intel builds all these great brand new plants here in the U.S., people are going to do their patriotic best to want to manufacture chips here in the U.S., no, they're not. <laughs> For the same reason that you won't cross the street to buy gas that costs a dime more from a patriotic gas station owner, you are going to vote with your dollar, just like every other semiconductor manufacturer or semiconductor consumer out there will. Kudos to Intel. If they can double their production with these incentives, then yes, Pat Gelsinger is going to make a mint for that company, and he will go down in history as one of the greatest CEOs of all time. This is not a knock on Pat, because Pat's doing what's best for his company and for the business. The problem is, is that the ship literally has already sailed overseas, because they have a very large head start, their economy of scale is much higher, and their costs are much lower. So if Intel wants to bring that back on shore, they're going to have to lower their prices, which they're not going to want to do because that's eating into their profit margin. And even if they decide to bottom them out in order to bring business in so that they can maybe hopefully eventually get that profit back, all the other people have to do, whether it's TSMC or Japan or China or anything else is, uh, and to quote everyone's favorite Colonel Sanders lookalike, there are levels of survival that we are willing to accept. And I promise you that with enough government funding, those people can cut it to the bone and a little beyond to just run this out of business and never have another problem like this in the future. So yeah, I think you're gonna see a lot of really cool plants being built in the Arizona desert, which seems to be everybody's new favorite place to build things. I think that Intel is going to make a lot of money soon with it, but I don't think that this is going to be the massive change in onshoring chip manufacturing that the um, talkers in the U.S. government are hoping that it's going to be. I think we're, we're going to be back to where we were today sooner than you think, just $52 billion poorer, at least from a, from a, a government perspective. On the other hand, I think the next domino to fall is going to be a requirement from the US government to only buy domestically produced chips. And then guess what? 
suddenly the cost basis will go up. Basically, they will be crossing the street to buy that from those patriotic chips, and that'll be that. So, yeah. Um, it, honestly, this is all a win for Intel. This is all a win. Let me just remind y'all, NVIDIA, also an American company. Qualcomm, also an American company. AMD, also an American company. This is a win for those big names and they're gonna get richer and richer. And um, you know, it probably won't hurt TSMC. I'm sure that they're not quaking in their boots. It probably won't hurt South Korea and Samsung. Uh, probably won't hurt Japan. There's a global need for this stuff. Um, yeah, it's just uh, more production in the US. Okay, cool. I like it. Well, it's a good note to end on. You know, better, more production for everybody in the US, happy people. Um, we're happy people here at The Rundown because we get to bring you news every Wednesday at 12.30 Eastern Time. We get to comb through the fun stories and, and kick out the deals that nobody cares about to bring you the hard-hitting, important news. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of other things that we do here at Gestalt IT, not just read the news. Um, Steven, you've got a couple of really big things going on this week. Why don't you tell people what you're up to? Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. So, yeah, we are excited to be hosting Cloud Field Day this week. So this is our next, uh, you know, in the series of uh, cloud-focused events. So tune in at techfieldday.com or, and this is the first time we're mentioning this in public, Tune in on LinkedIn. We're doing LinkedIn live video streaming all week, uh, Wednesday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 2 or 3 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, you'll see great cloud companies. Uh, we've got MinIO, uh, PlyOps, Nginx, Morpheus Data, Hazelcast, Zerto, Casten uh, by Veeam, and a little company called Intel presenting at our Cloud Field Day event. And actually, here's a clue. If you guys are a fan of the rundown and what we talk about here, especially this whole chip thing, I strongly urge you to tune in at 11.30 on Friday, 11.30 Pacific time for the Intel presentation, because Intel is gonna be taking the gloves off and talking Xeon versus Epic versus AMD in the cloud data center of the future. They are gonna do a competitive presentation, which will really appeal to the audience here. I am definitely going to be tuning in for that because I can't wait to see how Intel views that chip landscape. Um, but thankfully, I'll have time to tune in with that because I've been writing a lot of great stories for Gestalt IT and covering some of the great technologies that we've been seeing. And I have a new episode of Conversations that'll be publishing tomorrow, Thursday. So you're going to want to head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video to watch that. I'll give you a hint. It may have something to do with cloud. Um, but... I'll leave you to discover the rest. And if you are on our YouTube channel, you can discover all of the great videos that we make on a regular basis, including the on-premise IT roundtable, conversations, checksum, and even an occasional fun unboxing video. We we got to buy something, Stephen, so we can just unwrap it pretty soon because starting to get the uh, starting to get the need to do something. Now that Prime Day is over, we can buy the real stuff. Uh, but thank you very much for tuning in. We look forward to being able to talk to you next week. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. You can follow us at Gestalt IT. You can follow me at Networking Nerd. You can follow Stephen at S. Foskett. And you can follow the day job that we do at Tech Field Day. You're going to want to follow all of those accounts to keep up with what's going on. But for myself, for Stephen, our great crew here at Gestalt IT, and for all of the lovely people in our community, thank you very much for tuning in. And we hope that you have an amazing day. <laughs>